Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. I am excited to bring you this bonus episode of the What's Next live podcast with my guest, Michelle Romanoff. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this edition of What's Next LinkedIn Live, where I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Michelle Romanoff to the show. I could spend at least a half an hour describing what an awesome human she is, but let me give you sort of the highlights. Number one, it was just her birthday. So everybody wish her happy birthday in the comments. That's the first thing. Gemini season. Gemini season. But Michelle became the youngest dragon on Dragon's Den, which is Canada's version of sort of Shark Tank. Uh, Michelle has been named to Fortune's 40 Under 40. After the birthday, before the birthday, who knows? <laughs> I just, I turned 36, so still, I'm still under the limit. <laughs> all righty, all righty. A young global leader by the World Economic Forum, one of Canada's most powerful women and Canada's angel investor of the year. But what I love most about her is that she started six companies before her 35th birthday. She previously co-founded SnapSaves which was acquired by Groupon. She also co-founded Bytopia, which acquired 10 competitors and is now Emerge Commerce. But the really great news is that she is recently a unicorn. So ClearCo, her formerly ClearBank, uh, has now invested in more than $2 billion, more than 4,500 companies, making them the biggest e-commerce investor in the world. So if that doesn't make you feel like you didn't do anything here today, Michelle is here to tell us how that all happened. So welcome, Michelle, to the show. Oh, thank you. Well, it's great to be here with you, uh, you Tiffany. And that was such a kind introduction. I mean, when you hear the highlight reel, it's always um, so much more, along the way you feel like you're failing the whole way. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that people are like, oh, Michelle, an overnight success. <laughs> That's not the case, right? But before we dig into all that, I want to make sure that we get to highlight sort of the new exciting news. So why don't you share that with uh, our listeners today? Yeah, I mean, we just got to announce this $2 billion um, valuation, which was really exciting. I mean, this was a company that six years ago was started out of an Airbnb that we rented in San Francisco in the sunset. Uh, so no one lives in the sunset except us. We had a house. <laughs> where the power would flicker on and off um, like seven times a day. And we couldn't really figure it out, except the internet would go down seven times a day. So when you're running like a tech startup and there's seven of you, you actually like start to notice that. Um, and people for the first two years, this company came to Andrews in my condo and would work every day and we would pay the doorman off and champagne and coffee. <laughs> And hope that he wouldn't report us for running um, a small office out of our home. But um, it's just been like an incredible journey. And so much of like one thing led to the other. Like it was actually this experience of getting on Dragon's Den when I was so young and and really feeling like I was the poorest one on the show and the rent of the litter. I think I was just listening to the pitches a lot differently. I think what I was hearing was, you know, founders were coming on the show and they were saying, look, I need $100,000. I'm willing to give up 10% of my business. And you know, people always ask what you need the money for, but they weren't paying attention to the fact that everyone was spending the money on the same two things, which is I need to go buy user acquisition, which is Facebook and Google ads, and I need to go buy inventory. And I remember talking to Andrew and I was like, why are founders using the most expensive capital in the world to do something that's you know, repeatable and scalable? Like, right. You know, when you inject a dollar into Facebook, you get $3. You can only mark up inventory by three times. Like there's a fixed return on these items. And equity capital is so expensive. I mean, now 
um, you know, our, our seed investors, we've paid 350 times their money <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Uh, where was I when that happened? <laughs> well, they keep, and they keep going. And so equity is extremely expensive. Um, when um when you do well so I, I came back the next day on the show tiffany and i was like okay look let's just throw out a different deal type i'll give you that hundred thousand dollars you're looking for and instead of taking 10 percent of the business alone forever i just want 10 percent of your revenue until you pay me back my capital plus six percent and the founder said yes that day i had no idea that we were onto a billion dollar idea with that we have um effectively built uh the capital rails for the internet we've uh, now invested more than two billion dollars in um, in more than five thousand different companies, like and and really effectively a new asset class of, you know, no one believed that this was possible. They said, "Well, look, you have to do this by going to a bank and taking a loan with a personal guarantee." And I was like, "That's a shitty deal for founders," <laughs> or you have to go to the equity markets, which serves such a small percentage um, of founders. Well, what do you think uh, was the reason people decided to invest? Because I, I hear often, right, and I. Yeah that it's really hard to get investments. It's really hard as a female founder to get investments. Like that isn't the majority of where the money goes. There tends to be sort of the, the cities where there are investments and it's kind of, you know, really pushing the rise of the rest. And obviously you're a Canadian. So ultimately, what did you find, uh, do you think got you over that hump of getting people to really give you that shot early on? Um, so, a couple of things that matter in that part of the story. The first time is that I had already built and sold companies before anyone would invest in me. So this wasn't like, oh, I came out of school and someone was like, here's a seed check, Michelle. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, you know, raising venture capital is very difficult, even if you have a killer business um, with killer metrics. It is a incredibly time consuming process. This is three to six months of your time. Um, this involves an enormous amount of of what is actually personal rejection because people are saying no, sometimes they're saying no to your business, but they're also voting a lot as your confidence as a founder. And so that's that's actually a, an emotionally pretty tough journey uh, because when you go fundraise, I mean, I always believe you have to do a hundred meetings, you get 90 no's, you get five, you know, you're hoping to get, you know, five to 10 warms, two to three term sheets, and then you can have a little bidding war on top of that. But that's a lot of work to do all of that, to get all those plans to land um, at the same time. And so I, I step back and look at why the system existed. And it was really because we built a system of investing based on humans meeting other humans. And I wanna be clear, there's nothing wrong with that, but there is a huge amount of limitations with humans meeting other humans because we intrinsically use our human biases, which is totally normal. You meet founders and you feel their energy or they feel like other founders that have pattern recognition. And so that is why we've seen this. I mean, if it's a human to human business, of course, if you go to Harvard and Stanford, you're gonna probably get your businesses funded. And if you go to other schools, you're not. Of course, if you're in San Francisco or New York, you have a much higher probability of getting your business funded. And of course, if you look like other successful founders that have built unicorns, um, you are more likely to get funded because that is the basis of our human bias. And I would applaud the efforts that people have made um, to try and fix the system. I, I don't, I think at some point you have to look at totally different models, which is, I think, a little bit of what we've done. I mean, we said we are not going to use any human intervention on choosing who to give capital for. We're going to use the data from your business. So when you come to ClearCo, you 
connect the apps that run your business, your bank account, your payment processor, your ad spend account. We're looking at your growth metrics and your return on ad spend and how much of your audience size you've penetrated. And in a completely AI driven automated way, we tell you in 20 minutes, like this is how much capital we can give you. And this is the terms of that capital. And this is the craziest part of the story, Tiffany. It's like, I didn't expect this part. I was like, I got to build something faster and better and non-dilutive for founders. <laughs> but then two years later, we look at our portfolio and it looks so different. It's We've backed eight times more women than the venture capital industry average. We've backed founders in every state of America. Our international stats the same. And in the UK, 70% of our founders live outside of London. Um, and 30% of our founders are people of color. And so there is actually a way where, you know, if we take the humans out of this, we can also take a lot of bias out of this because we didn't build our model training on a human data set. We, we built it from first principles and from scratch. And so how involved are you? Cause I know you're a CEO of your business, right? But how involved are you and everybody else's businesses? We're, we're not, I mean, we, we get as involved as people would like for us to get. So I think there are many founders that um, would like to take capital and would like no involvement. And I am completely respectful of that. And so what we've tried to do is take our advantage of having all of this data and give that back to founders. And so now you can go in a dashboard and, you know, if you're selling footwear on the internet, we can compare you to 10,000 other companies that are selling shoes on the internet and say, look, your ROAS is a little bit high or your, you know, TikTok is actually working a lot better than Facebook right now. You should look at switching your ad spend. And so VCs can see this, but they see it at a very small sample size. They see it individual. We see this massive data set. And so, you know, our value add is not, um, is, is how do we show you that? Um, and then how do we help you do other things? Like when we have other founders that have been through your growth stage, how do we provide those introductions? How do we, you know, connect you with the people that might want to buy your business at the next stage or help you buy businesses if you're looking to roll up certain things? And so we've kind of, you know, instead of taking this approach of like, how as humans are we more successful? And of course, you have a you have an investment associate that you talk to on our team. Um we look at how do we use data to bring these founders a huge advantage because Tiffany, I don't know any founder that woke up and they said, I can't wait to start a business because I can't wait to fundraise. I can't wait to get a credit card. I can't wait to do financial statements like said no one ever. <laughs> so if we can make that part of their business easier. We're off to the races. And so I'm going to pivot a little bit because you have obviously those that you invest in, um, but you also have Dragon's Den and yes. you don't get a whole lot of time, right? It's yeah. like a two minute pitch. And it's also, you know, something founders probably don't wake up every day going like, I can't wait to pitch a thousand times and told no. Right. And then I can't wait to pitch on you know national television and get told no. I know. <laughs> Right. So what's the difference maybe in that very quick Dragon's Den pitch that makes you go, hmm, right? Because you really have to connect quickly and understand very quickly whether you're interested or not. So what's the difference between a longer cycle and that very quick Dragon's Den cycle? Yeah, no, of, of course. So um, first of all, Dragon's Den is beautifully edited and so is Shark Tank. So majority of the pitchers are on the show for an hour pitching us. And then that's cut into a beautiful six to seven minutes, which is why it is so fast um, and so entertaining. Because if you were to take your whole day and distill it into the highlight reel, it's a much more interesting day than <laughs> here I am brushing my teeth again. <laughs> no one wants to watch that. Um, and uh and so, so you know, Dragon's Den is different. Dragon's Den is equity investing, and there are probably like 
three things that I really look for um, and that I've really seen. So, you know, when you do an equity investment, it's, it's very different, especially at the early stage. I mean, we figured out a way to do a lot of this automated, which I'm a huge fan of. But when I when I choose to back a founder personally, there's there's three pieces. The first is that I'm looking for people with an incredible amount of grit and resilience. And this sounds a little bit fluffy, but I'm looking for um, hard life situations. Like the hardest thing that you have ever done cannot be you got fired from your first job. Like that, this is your life's going to get way tougher as a founder. Let me be very clear. The the barrage of no's and crises you have as a founder. I I have as a founder even day every day running a company at this scale um, is is almost unbelievable to people that haven't done it before. And so if you do not have either that chip on your shoulder, that that need to win, that ability to like constantly pick yourself up with your black eye and walk back into that ring, it is really hard to do this job. And now that I've been doing this for a while, it's funny because I, I get to look back at my own decisions and the founders that have actually done the worst in my portfolio were often very successful on on one of their first attempts at a business. So they had a video that went viral in the early days, or they they just didn't see that that they weren't quite invincible. So I think that I'd call that you know ultra resilient founders. I think the second thing I look for is just win win business models in general, um, where both sides of the equation win, and they're very hard. If you're just looking at a margin profile, those get arbitraged out over time. But one of my best um, deals from the show was a company called RVZ. They're, they built the Airbnb for RVs. Airbnb didn't build it because it's very complicated because it's a, it's a vehicle. So there's a whole insurance component of it. But I mean, you know, the stats in Canada are there's 2 million RVs that are driven on average two weeks of a year. So you have a massive, um, you know, asset class that's not being utilized. And so it's such a win-win when you build this. And those models are very difficult to displace. Um, and, uh, and then the third thing, that I think is hard to understand is that you are looking for a very big market in total, but a very specific market you can win in early on. And a lot of people get confused on this one because they're like, well, I'm selling shoes. You know what I mean? There's like 3 billion women in the world, like I have a massive market. It's like <laughs> very few companies ever get successful thinking like that. They think about well, I'm actually going to build the best shoes for nurses and actually nurses in New York City. And then I can get cult following or a very small group that is incredibly loyal. And then I can go from nurses to flight attendants. And then I can and then I can build um, mainstream. And, I, you know, it's just it's, it's one example, but it's very powerful because you want a business that has a huge potential market, but actually starts off very niche. Because if you start off saying I'm going to boil the ocean, I mean, you just never have enough marketing dollars to do that as an early stage company. So anyway, that's a complicated set of criteria, but those are kind of the three things I look for. No, they're fantastic. And so for those of you joining us across all the platforms, please post your questions for Michelle, because this is for you, really. I mean, I could talk to her all day long, but you know, <laughs> we'd love to get some from you as well and also share where you're joining us from. But there's a couple of things that you highlighted there because you know, often in my career, right? I'm asked by by leaders, yeah. by companies, like, how can we grow? How can we accelerate? What can we do better? And sometimes the advice is slow down yep. so that you can speed up, right? So just as go, you said, go I'm not going to go fast. Yeah, right? That yep. I'm not going to go after the 3 billion people who need to wear shoes. I'm going to go yep. after a very specific, you know, uh, market yep. uh, and, and kind of the Red Bull strategy, right? Start Absolutely. local, understand, get raving fans, 
you know, and then and then move on from there. And and I think that if you don't trust the process, you get ahead of yourself, right? And you yeah. start to put the pressure that I need to be going faster, faster, harder, harder, harder. And yeah. that doesn't always mean smarter, um, for sure. Uh, yeah. What about the technology investments early on? You know, I know that you are in the e-commerce space, <laughs> right? And you're in tech and you get it and the power of data. What do you tell sort of founders or small businesses, entrepreneurs, when it comes to technology and the, the value of that in their business? Oh, um, you have to start with the perspective of you're ahead starting today because you have no technical debt. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Tiffany, you're at Salesforce. You know what it means to take an, an, a product and, and bring it along. And so, first of all, you technology does all of the work and so much of the work that doesn't bring us joy as human beings. And so instead of ever viewing this as an enemy, I, I always view technology as an ally in terms of like, how do I automate my life, my business? How do I get data better? Like this is core to, if you're running the smallest, you know, local store um, to the way that you can scale because it can actually bring so much joy to your life because you don't have to do things that, you know, would have been processes on, like, frankly, pen and paper. And so, that, and that's the other thing is like, I know that this often feels overwhelming for entrepreneurs and for small, you know, business owners, but I mean, we had to just put the stick in the sand at the very beginning. I mean, you know, we had no idea what the hell we were doing. I mean, truly, honestly, but we had this thesis that, you know, the data from these data sources would be more indicative than personal credit score, that we were not going to take a personal guarantee because that was a really nasty thing to do to founders. And 250 people on Wall Street told me I was crazy. Like they, they genuinely looked me in the whites of the eyes and they're like, ma'am, you either don't understand credit, you don't know what you're doing, this will never work. And I said, look, I think this data is going to be more indicative and we're going to do it. And we built that. I mean, we, we built the first system on in, ingesting this data and figuring it out. Like we were, we were technology driven from the very beginning and we made lots of mistakes. I mean, we had cohorts where we lost 30% of our money in the early days because we didn't know what we were doing, but we could learn fast enough. And we had technology that could learn fast enough that we could get, you know, so much better than this. And then you know, the, the rest becomes history. And all of those people that told me I was crazy is now, you know, knocking on our doors again, looking to well, it's It's like that pretty woman moment. Yeah. Big mistake, big yeah. mistake, right? And I almost feel like so many founders I've talked to um, will say that people thought you were crazy and then most completely succeed, right? It's yeah. it's the lack of vision. It's the lack of that beginner's mind. It's It has to be the status quo, you know, otherwise it's not gonna work. Well, yeah. we've got we've got a question uh, from uh, Dr. Howard Dover, who I'm a huge fan of. He's teaching the next generation of sellers every single day. Um, but how do you assess grit? Have you had instances where you felt duped? Um, question. Yeah, I mean, you. So, and 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 is this? I hope. I think you're probably talking about it in an interview context. I think. Um, I think there's a couple common places that grit comes from. I think like understanding, you know, how people grew up and like what, why they're doing what they're doing, I think is is pretty important and, and is actually generally a pretty non-invasive question, right? And I found that there's like a couple of, of columns on this. I mean, one of them is I need to make this because I don't have other options in life. So I grew up in a poor family. I need to make this work. Like 
there is a lot of grit in those folks. And I mean, it gives me so much faith in, in what people can build. And I backing those people has never, has never failed me. Um, you know, there's then there's people that grew up in probably, you know, better circumstances, but have a huge chip on their shoulder, right? A need to prove a parent wrong or their partner wrong, but just relentless in improving right. themselves. And I think um, I certainly fell into that bucket. I sometimes I don't even know who I'm proving wrong. I just I'm just on a mission. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> again, and it's not. Um, and I should be able to make fun of myself because it's like it's like you know there was someone that doesn't matter at all, and I'm just so excited to show them that <laughs> they they made the wrong call. <laughs> um, but I think motivation comes from just so many different places. Um, you know, one of our interview questions that we ask is what's the hardest thing you've had to do? And I think that, you know, some people, like we're not looking for, you know, when you had to give, you know, someone died in your life, right? Those are obviously incredibly hard moments, but we're, you know, you're looking to understand what are people's threshold for, for pain? Um, and what do they do when things really blow up? Because I have never, I mean, every business is the story of this. Like it just never goes up and to the right the whole way along. And we can tell those stories to the press and we can tell those stories um, when we only have five minutes to tell the story, but that's just not, um, that's just not the truth. And have I been duped? Of course. I mean, I, interviewing is a, um, is a imperfect process. Investing in founders is a completely imperfect process. Um, and then the other thing that's just, the other, the other way to measure grit is, is a level of relentlessness. And so, you know, my best deals off the show are people that followed up with me a ton. I mean, they got in my calendar early on when we started doing diligence. Um, they are the people that send emails after interviews. They're the people that volunteer to be helpful. Like there is something about the early bird gets the worm. And if you're just all day long, taking shots on goal, like something hits, <laughs> those people genuinely uh, make it. And so it's it's one of those things that all of us can do. All of us can be present and think about what the other people need. But anyway, that's those are some of my ideas on, on assessing. Well, for those of you just joining us, uh, Michelle Romanow is uh, a powerhouse. Uh, you know, I introduced her this morning saying, you know, she's a unicorn, billion dollar brand, followed up by the news of this week that she is now a $2 billion <laughs> unicorn. So, you know, this sort of entrepreneurial advice is golden. It's a masterclass in what you need to do. Um, so uh, I've got another question here um, from uh, Vala Afshar, who's a colleague of mine, one of my favorite humans. She who has a strong enough why will find the how. So I think that was a common comment uh, to yeah. you for how you've just persevered. Uh, I yeah. think it's fantastic, right? No matter how many no's you got, you put your big girl pants on and continued uh, to prove <laughs> them wrong every single day, which, you know, I can say uh, as a woman in business, I admire the work that you've done. Um, so we've got another question here from Roberto Esparaza. He says, going for niche is in your proof of concept stage, targeting your psalm afterwards. So I'm guessing this is going for the niche, like as we described, right? Yeah. The nurses, shoes, yeah. and then going yeah. for the entire share of market sort of after yeah. that. Um, as the right way to go. And I'm going to guess you're going to agree with R Roberto's comment. Yes. Yeah, no, for sure. That, that is the, the nurse story for sure is, is how do you, how do you become big in one area? And it, this is where, I mean, look, this is where I think we all get into trouble is we just get very excited about other things. Right. And we forget, first of all, how big single markets are 
I mean, in our business today, there is, you know, there's, it's like, we have an international strategy, we have a new product strategy, we have um, like so many things happening. And, you know, I, I love this line that, you know, businesses die of gluttony, not of starvation. They, they rarely die of doing a couple things really, really, really well. Um, but they can, they can do very poorly on, um, they can do very poorly on, uh, on staying focused. The other thing around um, why, the, and, and, I, and I liked um, Vala's comment, is that this is something that you have, I don't know who's ringing on my door, but uh, <laughs> the other thing, let me just check two seconds here. Um, no, this is the, the life of an entrepreneur yeah. in a hotel room doing Ex a live cast. Exactly. I mean, if you haven't had a dog and a kid in, in the live, um, <laughs> anyway, um, let's go, let's go back to this comment of why, because I think that that does come back to us. I mean, our, our why is like so strong as a business, right? We believe that, you know, we could have a tiny part in building a world where anyone that has not only a great idea, but great metrics should be able to get their businesses funded. And frankly, that's not the way the world has previously existed. It existed, I mean, 2000 years ago, if you knew the king, your projects got built and your roads got built. And today those kings are, you know, the capital providers of the space, which are, you know, VCs and Wall Street. And so if you went to school with those folks, it's often not hard for you to raise money. But if you are a single mother, a military veteran, a um, you know, someone that looks a little bit different, your life's been very hard. And I think that we, we talk too much about this, but we just saw that as a, as, a, as an opportunity and the stuff that our founders are building is just stuff that I don't think you would ever, um, you know, see, like that's the whole value of diversity is that they're building products that you didn't even know there was a market for. <laughs> and so we think about what the world could look like um, if everyone that had great metrics and a great business was able to get funded and there wasn't this, you know, huge bias that was effectively um, in the system. And that going back to that why is like, frankly, like what gives me motivation at this point, <laughs> like, you know, there's, there's nothing like raising at a huge valuation where you're like, oh my God, I'm at Everest and I just got to base camp and I'm a little bit out of breath right now. <laughs> so it gives you that oxygen injection and I think your team the injection and just the frankly the ability to persevere through all of the things that happen um, because it's it's really hard. I mean, this is a journey where there's competitors doing nasty stuff to you. There is people that are leaving your organization. There's people that are your, your closest friends that are growing out of your organization. I mean, these are emotionally hugely taxing things to do all while you're trying to like, you know, constantly double the size of your company uh, every 12 months. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, you know, when first time we met, what I, what I enjoyed most about our conversation was you lead with empathy, like you're very approachable, you're, you know, very invested in sort of not only the future of your business, but in sort of the greater shareholders you serve, right? So your yeah. communities, um, your companies, your employees. Um, but I I'm going to pivot really hard on this one because I know we're getting close to running out of time. But, you know, you had you had given this suggestion. Um, as a leader, right, to actually put yourself out there and ask your people, your teams, your companies, your employees, sort of what could I, what could we be doing better right yeah. now, differently right now? What are we doing that's stupid, as yeah. you say, sort of yeah. the stupid inbox 
right? Yeah. And I want to share this because I, I have used this example, Michelle, probably a hundred times in no keynote way. since we last spoke. Yeah. Where I said, Michelle Romanoff, she's on Dragon's Den, she's a you know a, a unicorn founder, and she set up a mailbox that was like, what is the stupid stuff we're doing? The Email stupid here. Rules. Stupid rules. Yeah. So why don't you tell that story? Oh yeah, I mean this is um, this is the attack on stupid rules and stupid processes in an organization. I, I think my coach told me one of the most incredible things. I, I, you know, when anyone says something to you is so profound, and he goes, Michelle, people do not get burnt and and burnt out from volume of work. They get burnt out because they do stuff and it goes nowhere. And I was like, oh my god. And so then my whole MO has been, how do I make sure that the incredible people that work for us do not feel that their work is in vain? And I can tell you, incredible people do not want to deal with stupid rules. They do not want to deal with process. They do not want to deal with like, I'm, I know what this company needs to do and it's it's not happening. I'm getting blocked by HR. I'm getting blocked by, I don't know, some hiring guideline. I'm getting blocked by finance on spending a small amount of money that I absolutely need to make a bigger thing happen. Um, and so I... And it's funny, Tiffany, because when I when I first met you, we had just started this and we had rules about companies we could fund and couldn't fund and um, how we could pay. Like, And I just said, look, you you guys have to DM me every time you find a stupid rule in our organization. And I had like 50 employees reach out. <laughs> and some of these were so easy to solve. I mean, we just went on all hands and we're like, we're no longer doing this or we've clarified this rule. And as soon as you feel like that's making momentum, more people come to you and are like, well, there's a really silly process when we hire people that we do this. And I think it is our jobs as leaders, especially as companies grow. The natural the natural state of the company as it gets bigger is for people to establish their own fiefdoms and establish their own rules and establish their own processes. And it is a deliberate full-time activity to rip those things out of your organization <laughs> and remind people that it's their job to move fast. It is their job to be building the most productive systems so that people that are working so hard feel like their work is going some, somewhere. And so, um, I mean, I could I could list to you so many things, but it's it's been an important thing. And it, and it was like we had to do kind of one set of it. And now we're six months later. And now I have to do a whole other set of this because we've had new people join the org. But I think it's one of the most important things um, that we've been able to do. It's almost like you need to create a role, you know, like I'm a growth evangelist, right? It's a, it's a title that's very made up yeah, yeah, yeah. in so many ways. Right. But it almost needs to be like the CEO of removing stupid stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And it's a really important role. And it has to be someone like it had to come from me. This was like, I am dead serious that I am doing this. Like, this is not like a comment to HR on how you're feeling. This is like, give me something that I can rip out of this organization right now. And there's there's some things that are established that are good. Like there are, you know, categories of companies we can't fund just because like we we actually can't do it from a regulation standpoint. But then at least we get to tell people that. And so they know the reason. And so they give a real reason to a founder at the end of the day. So anyway. Well, I think that employee, that term, the experience, they're feeling connected to where they work has been so disrupted over the last 18 months. Yeah. Right. I mean, that definition. And so, uh, you know, how how do you um, work now to make sure that this kind of flex work environment, keeping the culture, keeping people engaged and feel like they're part of something. Yeah. Uh, what have you done during this time to really sort of keep, you know, the conditions good, yeah. you know, for your people as everything is changing? 
Yeah. Um, so look, I will preface this with this is not this has not been easy. Andrew and I were very much in person leaders. I can get a perfect gauge of the room and how people are feeling as soon as I walk in there and lost all of those tools, you know, 14 months ago, like everyone else. Um, but a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, I read this from a social psychologist years ago, but uh, the number one reason that people stay in a job, I still find this mind blowing, is because they have a best friend at work. And that really stuck with me. First of all, it, it, it rings very true. I can actually think of people that are incredibly difficult on my team, but they have really strong friendships and they have not wanted to leave the organization. <laughs> um, I can think about people that have had, you know, just really tough roles and transitions and, you know, have just been a, in a part of the org that has gone through a lot of change. And when they had good support networks, they stayed. And then I can think of people that are incredibly talented that we, that we could not retain and they probably just didn't have those deep things. And so um, we are trying to build that. I think our, our view of how the new world is going to be. We always would do these twice a year retreats where everyone would be in person. We would do so much activities to get people to build one-on-one -on -one friendships, you know, smaller groups, mid-sized groups, half groups, like all of the, the classic stuff you do at retreats to build some of those relationships. And that, that worked really well and carried us on. I mean, we've hired 170 people since COVID started. And so we have a lot of people that haven't met each other. So I think that's been that's been something that we envision as like now there's like going to be this hybrid world is like we have to get everyone together um, internationally so they can meet each other. Uh, I think, you know, remarkable transparency has to go a long way. At the beginning of COVID, we did all hands actually every day, which felt excessive. But even if Andrew and I just said like, hey, we have all the same news as you. This is what we're doing. This is what tomorrow holds. Like, that's all we can plan for. Um, I think that went a long way. And um I think the last thing is that, again, back to this, the stupid rules thing, we had to show that we were taking people's feedback and, and moving forward with that really quickly. Like there is nothing that engages employees more than either I'm seeing a problem, here's why we can't solve this problem, or here's why this problem is not important enough to solve, or here's why that problem conflicts with another more important priority, or we just did it and it's fixed. And then people start feeling that momentum and that organizational momentum around every day this organization moves forward. That's what gets people re-engaged and has the ability because you, you we all get this feeling in organizations where it's like, oh, well, that's going to be a problem forever. <laughs> and that's when people give up because the most important problems I've had to solve at Clearco are the ones that have taken us like nine to 12 months. And I just like, I kept feel, I kept feeling like I had to just like stick my hand in a really gross drain and just like keep pulling out the stuff. And I'm like, well, that didn't work and that didn't work. And like, we're gonna try it again. And then like suddenly you get rid of the clog and it's like, it's all working, but it's like, you know, by the end of it, your hand's gross, it's cut up, it's sore. And you're like, man, it took me nine kicks at the can to get this to work. But it's the perseverance and grit, right? It's the perseverance and grit. All right. So I you know, want to be respectful. I know you have some place to be. We got one last question from Elliot. Uh, and I think this is a good one to wrap this up. It's it's what would you give uh, employee trying to pivot to a business owner, but struggling to find challenges with solutions they're able to provide themselves or even building a team with a similar interest or goal? So, you know, I I'm working for someone and I want to pivot to an entrepreneur. What, what would you recommend um, for someone who is looking to break away from corporate and become an entrepreneur? Oh, 
just got to do it. <laughs> There's no, there you go. I mean, this is a swimming pool and you're looking at that water and the water is not getting any warmer and you got to jump in at some point. And so you can start, you know, at the early days, putting some feelers out there, but you have to give yourself a timeline. I, I genuinely believe you can test almost any idea in the world as a first time founder. I mean, not perfectly every industry, but, but as a general rule, $10,000 in three months of your time, you can get an early test on, on almost anything. You can make a video on your iPhone. You can run a, you know, Kickstarter. If you're running a product business, you can run around and, and see if you can sell early pieces of software when it's not built yet to some, some, uh, some people, but that timeline thing is really, really important. Um, and just jumping in, you will never feel comfortable. You will never feel ready. This will never feel like the right time to build a business. And it's on Dragons and it's always so funny. It's the people that have been like, I've been thinking about this for 10 years. I'm like, oh my God, the iPhone was barely around 10 years ago. What have you been doing? <laughs> you kind of have to, to move fast and be willing to take some risk. Um, and so I, I wish you the best. And I think it's never been a better time to build. I mean, the economy is looking for brand new things and is um, I think is very accepting of entrepreneurs today. So just go do it. Excellent. Well, we are going to wrap this up, Michelle. Again, happy birthday. So one more time, thank you for being the amazing leader, CEO, unicorn investor that you are. Keep making a difference every single day. I appreciate the opportunity to have you on this LinkedIn Live, What's Next with me today. And I hope we get to see each other soon, face to face. I can't wait. Thank you, Tiffany, for having me. It was so lovely. All right. Thanks, everybody.